This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two just fantastic human beings, Paul Jaisley. Hello. And Nick White. Hey. Thank you guys for being here with me this week. It is a brand new episode. It's I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because we were just talking about the IRCB survey results. I, I mean, like, I'm feeling great today. I'm feeling excited. I'm ready to talk about comic books. You know, I've got a whole thing that I want to tell everybody about when I get to my whole piece of what I've been reading. But for now, let me ask the question I ask every single week. And that is, how have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Nick. Uh, things have been good. It's randomly like 45 degrees in Michigan. I, d- I don't know what's going on, but uh, the snow's going to completely melt and it's just going to be, I don't know, it's going to be gross again. Who knows? Um, beyond that, I actually have been doing some reading. I know everyone has been waiting with bated breath for uh, when is Nick going to discuss new Valiant titles. I know that's like I know there's like a Valiant watch clock somewhere. It's been X mm-hmm. amount of days. You guys are going to have to go reset it because here we go. Um, oh my. So I read The Visitor 1 and 2. This is written by Paul Levitz, drawn by MJ Kim, colors by Diego Rodriguez, and letters by Simon Boland. And Look, I know for a lot of you older DC fans out there, there's probably a whole lot of love for Levitz. His run on Legion of Superheroes was a big deal. He was also the president of DC Comics from 02 to 09. Um, I'm not really sure if that final point is, like, worthy of praise or booing. I wasn't reading DC at the time, so maybe that's not that good of an accomplishment. I don't know. Um, But my point is, like, for me... I largely know him for his work on Dr. Fate, which he did with Sonny Liu um, maybe four or five years ago. And it appears that, like, based on that book and based on um, The Visitor, that Levitz is very much obsessed with placing his books in New York City and also has a thing for characters with weird helmets, basically. Okay. Um, and and you, MJ Kim is probably best known for drawing 2018's Faith Dreamside. Now, if you're thinking, uh, Nick, what's what's the visitor about? I'm stalling for time because I'm not really sure myself. Uh, <laughs> two issues in. Uh, he, here's the visitor, okay? Um, guy sort of in like a all black kind of like riding like motorcycle getup with a semi sort of motorcycle helmet shows up on earth i'm we're not even sure he's from earth or not from earth i don't know and there's an explosion at the japanese consulate and basically turns out these uh japanese scientists are in town they're working on some ai project or something uh and this guy's chasing him around they go off on the run and he starts following them wherever they go you know i Again, like, there, there's not much to be said about this book. Look, I, I followed the Backstreet Boy line of questioning uh, to see if I could find out, like, who this guy is, where he's from, what he did, uh, <laughs> as long as he loves me. Um, and I really don't know that much, okay? Like, okay. it's... I, I don't know. Like, basically, okay, this this is this is my best way of explaining this book. Like, mm-hmm. someone comes to you with, like, some file, and it's marked top secret, and you're like, oh, a top secret. And they're like, yeah, this is a big deal. It's a huge secret. You won't, like, 
you, you can't tell anyone about this. It's, 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 it's amazing. And you open it up and it's like 99% redacted. And you're like, well, I'm sure there's a great story here. If I had more than three mentions of the word the to work with, um, but that's all I've got. Do you think that this book is going to perform better probably as a collection then? Like as you're reading multiple issues in a row? It absolutely has to. Like it has no choice. Um, (laughs) As single issues, this is like, like they're getting off on the fact that like, everything is cloaked in ambiguity but like that's not how things work you have to give me some morsel for me to go and start connecting the yarn lines on my corkboard with okay like i need a starting point like i need a foundational basis to work with and 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 it's not giving that there's nothing to go Ooh, i wonder about this um beyond that the other kind of troubling thing I'm noticing with this book is it does not seem concerned at all with linking to the larger Valiant universe. And hmm. I would basically say, based on what I've observed in the last couple months, I think DMG is not that concerned. DMG being the new, being the new majority shareholders of Valiant. I think DMG is not that concerned with having a shared universe. And I would say some of the recent activities would make me think they're actually um, making moves to um, move away from that system. Uh, and if you want any further proof, basically the fact that the, the Bloodshot movie is with Sony, but the Harbinger movie is going to be with um, Paramount which more or less seals their fate from what I understand of having a shared universe um, cinematically. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that they're not that interested in having that, which is, um, for some people, myself included, that's, that's unfortunate. Interesting. How is the art on this book? Um, I, I like MJ Kim's art. I think it strikes a pretty good balance between... Um, you know, animated and, and realism. I think that, uh, I was reading some tweets over the last couple months about, I think it was Levitz talking about all of the work that went into rendering, uh, his vision of what he wanted to show of New York. Um, and so, I mean, yes, if, if, if you were looking for, for a reason to finally like throw away your lonely planet guide to New York, um, I guess, you can do it now if you have this comic. <laughs> Good to know. Because yeah. he's going to show you all the spots. Um, I see. I see. Uh, beyond that, I will briefly mention I also did read um, British Ice, which is an original graphic novel by Owen Pomery, who wrote and drew it uh, for Top Shelf Press. Um it's an Arctic mystery that also sort of deals with colonialism. It's got a minimalist, sort of scratchy, almost uh, Edward Gorey-like art style. Uh, I didn't get a lot of time with it, however, because Hoopla was down for a large amount of yesterday. <laughs> nah, that's a bummer. So, um, yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I was, wasn't sure if, if you were done. I don't know how far you got in the book, but, you know, we'll move on. Paul... How are you? How have comic books been? Uh, I'm good, Mike. Um, I'm trying something new in the year 2020. I'm taking <gasps> a cue from you and actually <gasps> making a spreadsheet of everything I'm reading. Um, so it's been pretty interesting. So I've had one month to look at it, and uh, it's I, it's more of it's more for me to remember when it gets to December and I can't recall what I read to make a best of the year list. That's kind of like the major See, reason to do it. 
this is literally why I started my because I was I was at a point where I was like, did I read this earlier this year? Right. The last time this issue came out was in June, I think. Did I read it? Yeah. Like that that's where I was with it. Right. So there's that. And then it is also nice to see how my reading habits have changed. And um I'm reading a lot more collections, but it's almost exclusively digital, thanks to Hoopla. Mm-hmm. So it's been interesting to kind of track that stuff. Uh two things I've read recently that I wanted to talk about on the show. Uh first one is Dark Knight Returns, The Golden Child, the one shot that Frank Miller wrote. Uh, Raphael Grandpa did the artwork, uh, Jordi Belair on colors, and of course, John Workman on letters. This -hmm. came out late last year, and initially I didn't pick it up because I really didn't like uh, Dark Knight Returns 3 that Miller did a few years ago with Brian Azzarello. And um, I really didn't like the Superman Year One book that Miller did with John Romita Jr., so I'm like, right. maybe I don't need Frank Miller in my life at this point, but I read some really <laughs> some really positive reviews of Hot this. Take. Yeah, right. I, I read some <laughs> positive reviews of this one shot um, from people whose uh, taste I really respect. So I gave it a whirl, and I'm glad I did. It's actually an incredibly fun comic. I really, really liked it. Um, it takes place three years after Dark Knight Returns 3. It has the same characters in it, um, but instead of it being a Batman story, it's a dark side story. And it's Miller doing a Kirby homage, which I don't recall him really doing that often. And it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to see. Um, Grandpa is able to do a mix of big, full-page, full-on Kirby dark side stuff. And then the next page would be an homage to the original Dark Knight Returns, Miller's style. And the way he's able to jump between the two is really interesting. It's absolutely breathtaking at moments uh, in terms of visual artwork. And Jordy Blair's colors, of course, like just make the pages pop, you know, in a really interesting way with that artwork. And even John Workman's letters stood out to me. I think everyone involved in this book, that's an all-star murderer's row lineup of creators for me, right? Totally. And they all bring their A-game, and I'm just stunned how much I enjoyed it. I mean, there's some like ham-fisted political commentary you're getting. Uh, the main plot sure. is that Darkseid teams up with the Joker to rig the, the U.S. election, but when it gets to the point where Darkseid is basically destroyed and gets reborn in outer space, you're looking at these pages like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You know, it's just over-the-top, Kirby-esque in a way I don't think Miller does very often. It's really cool to see. So That's awesome. Yeah. That's that's great to hear. I mean, I would I would I was looking up uh, Raphael Grampa's uh, art, mm-hmm. and it, I can see why Miller would want to work with him. Like, it, it's very reminiscent of Miller's work, yeah. but, like, it's very unique in the same way. Yeah, there's a couple pages where i think grandpa's like purposely doing miller's inking style and then there's other pages where he's doing himself and yeah there's a there's one page and i don't want to give anything away but there's one page where you just see dark side being like reborn as like a star in outer space and it's breathtaking it's one of the coolest images i've seen in a long time and um it's an incredibly fun comic for his um so if, if you've given up on miller but you're kind of curious. I think he's still got a few tricks up his sleeve. This one might be worth checking out, especially if you love Kirby. It's it's a pretty amazing homage to to Jack there. Very cool. Um, the other big surprise I read was uh, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, um, which is a five issue mini series from Dynamite that came out last year, but I hadn't heard of until I started seeing it in everyone's best of the year list. So it completely mm-hmm. passed me by. Um, it's written by Kieran Gillen, art by Casper Wingard. Colors by Mary Sofo and letters by Hassan Atsame El Hau. Of course, I'm butchering that last name. We'll have to add that to the pronunciation guide yeah, at some yeah. point. So, um, I do want to make special mention of the letters, though, uh, because this book, um, if you don't know, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt is one of the 
Charlton Comics characters that DC bought in the 80s and that Alan Moore based the Watchmen characters on, right? So it's mm-hmm. one of the characters mm-hmm. like Blue Beetle and uh, The Question. Um, Peter Cannon is basically the Ozymandias analog. And oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. this book is, is, it's not quite a sequel, but it is a commentary on Watchmen. It takes place after Watchmen, and it, it's based on an alternate reality. Peter Cannon, who finds out what Ozymandias did in Watchmen and tries to stop him. Um, and I mentioned the letters because the first visual indication you get that it's connected to Watchmen is that um, Atsamne, at, sorry, the letterer um, does the exact same lettering style that Dave Gibbons does in Watchmen. So like when you see that lettering style, it's so identical, so um, idiosyncratic. It's like, oh, this is a Watchmen reference. And it gets deeper and deeper from there, which I thought was really interesting. This is, oh man, (laughs) you're kicking my head in with this because I read this book and I was like, what the fuck is happening? Oh, really? And when you, yeah, no, no joke. I didn't know any of this stuff. Oh, okay. And hearing you say that, puts the whole book in perspective. I got to reread this shit. Right. Yeah, cuz it's it's a commentary on Watchmen but not so much the content of Watchmen but the formalism of Watchmen. And Peter Cannon mm-hmm. the main character of this book uses the formal structure of Watchmen in, in in a really interesting way and Kieran Gillen makes it a narrative you know part of the book. The actual structure of Watchmen becomes uh has a narrative function in this story. Um and at the end of the book, you kind of realize that it's Peter uh, Kieran Gillen basically saying, uh, through the Peter Cannon character, we can do something else. We've been doing this for 30 years. We can try something else with it. You know what I mean? I mean That's literally what yeah. he says at the end of the book. So I was just going to say, <laughs> it seems like Watchmen is like the World War II of cinema. Yeah. Right, where like Watchmen is that is that thing that no one can get away with. It happened, and for some reason, somehow all books lead back to it in some capacity. Yep. Like Marvel Comics can never get away from kicking the face in of Nazis. <laughs> right. Like you know, like it's it's such a strange thing that like everything you 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 pull back from a lot of comics, you go, oh shit, this was commentary on Watchmen. <laughs> and, like I didn't even realize it, but, and yeah. uh, that's it's really funny. And I think this is a really well done one. It's not heavy handed. You know, it's it's there's a meta commentary to it, but it's also a really fun superhero story, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a superhero story that avoids all the obvious superhero tropes in a way. And there's a twist in like issue four, which I think is really interesting um, that I don't want to give away um, where it deviates into another form of comic book storytelling um, and another reference artistically, which I did not expect. Um, but overall, yeah, it, it's less, it's less a sequel or a commentary on Watchmen and more the idea of like, Hey, we're let's let's do something else with nine panel grid. You know, let's do something else right. with these tools that when more uses them, they're very effective in Watchmen, but we can't just copy them. We have to do something else with them. And I, and, and as someone that's always tried to get into Kieran Gillen and never, it's never clicked for me. I was really surprised how much I really liked this, this book. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's there, like I said, it's, it's uh, meta commentary, but it's not heavy handed. It's a really fun story. And uh, I'm actually excited to go back and reread it, you know, kind of catch all the details. Maybe I missed the first time. Well, now I have to go back and reread <laughs> right. it because I, I was kind of, I felt like this book was kind of a dud when I first read it. Now oh. I feel like I just missed something. I feel like or I'm the dud. 
now that I think about it, I, I like can't even remember the details of this of the book oh. because I feel like I read it in a haze or something. So I'm gonna have to go back and check that out. This yeah. is when we just find out Mike didn't actually read this book at all. Book. I mean, there, that is you know that is a possibility. I have to go check my spreadsheet. That's just um, you know it's just surprising to see something like this from a publisher that's largely known for like. 29 red sonia covers so you right. know and, and um I, which I, just I, goes to show i mean follow follow creators uh yeah the you know a publisher can be known for lots of uh variant cover abuses or um <laughs> yeah uh well they they also published james bond and like right. that's a fucking kick-ass series it has been since warren ellis and greg pock wrote a bunch of really cool stuff in it so like dynamite's got some things up their sleeve i think yeah right, but you do kind of have to go of your way to find the gems i think so true yeah well true, and true, it's true. just another you know statement or something worth pointing out that you know a franchise character can still uh result in some pretty out there stuff yeah yeah exactly. totally yeah. well for me um I've been alright. I've been playing so much Dungeons & Dragons, um, it's to the point where I had to cancel a game because I was so overwhelmed with how much I had to prepare and do and play as a character, so um, it's it's been a lot. But it's also good, like I really love playing D&D, but I did manage to find some time to read some comics yesterday, which was the big thing, Um, and well I should say over this last week, but the first book I want to talk about is a series that I've been backing on Kickstarter, and that actually kind of leads to a thing that I'm trying to do all throughout the month of February, and I'm actually trying to read a lot of the Kickstarter books that I've backed and maybe just never read over the last six years, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. Like there are books dating back to, I think, 2015, so five years that I haven't read um, that I've just been sitting on, which is insane. But, um, you know, you do things, you think a Kickstarter sounds cool, and then the book gets delivered two years later and you go, oh, right, I forgot I have that. Um, but Skies of Fire is a series that I started backing in 2017 um, when they put out the one through four Kickstarter that they were doing. And I thought it was a limited series. Um, and I read, I remember reading the first issue and was like, oh, that's cool. And then I never read the rest. And so issue number six just recently was delivered or something. I think I got an update about it recently saying, oh, number seven's coming out. Make sure you read six because it's the penultimate issue um, number seven will be. So I decided to read through one through six. This is by uh, Vincenzo Ferrario and Ray Chow with art by Pablo Papino and Brian Valenza. Like I said, I've been back in this for a while, and the series is gorgeous and super suspenseful. The story is a world, fantasy world, where it's things are kind of modernized, and I won't say steampunk because it's not really steampunk, but there are zeppelins. People like they travel using zeppelins, and it's more of like a military slash pirate style sense of travel where there's this industrial age style of living but it feels like the open seas of pirates um and so we get this really interesting kind of clash between our main character who is this officer who works for the government who has to team up with a you know a former pirate in order to go find this one pirate that killed a bunch of people and the art in this book i cannot express how beautiful it is it is some of the coolest zeppelin art i've ever seen but more like there's just a lot of really well done action um and i think a lot of the characters are very unique and every single page is so detailed it's worth the wait between issues because you can tell that these guys are killing themselves to keep the quality of this book so high um it blows my mind i have a, I have a postcard of all of the various zeppelin models that i got as part of the ba- backing the kickstarter and uh or no i got that at, the, at a convention when i met the guys um a few years back and it's it's just beautiful and that ended up being a two-page spread in the back of one of the issues as like backup art and holy crap this book is beautiful uh, you don't really have to be into like steampunk zeppelins and all this stuff to dig this book i think if you like a good action 
like if you like a good action story about people like trying to catch someone trying to find this villain and they end up in a place where they shouldn't be i think you'll really dig this book it is beautiful all of the characters are very well defined you fall in love with each of them as the issues go on as it kind of focuses on one person um for a little bit more than they did on the previous issues and so by issue six like i want this this team of good guys to catch the bad guy and then a big twist happens in issue six and i think seven and eight are going to be a fantastic way to round out this series so if you can check this out skies of fire number one through six are out um kickstarter for number seven is coming pretty soon and i think if you back the issue number seven you can get all previous six issues as part of your you know backing on kickstarter which is really cool is Um, it possible to get this book outside of kickstarter or where where does someone go who who's interested in that sometimes i'm always confused about you know how that works uh i i don't know i'm gonna guess that they i think they have a website where you can maybe buy this. Hmm. I I'm, I don't think it's on Comixology or anything like that. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's... Oh, no, it is on Comixology. I'm sorry. So you can go buy this on Comixology right now. Issues one through four are on Comixology. So you have to wait a little bit to get five and six and stuff. But I'm guessing because they're an independent creator, it just kind of takes some time for them to get things up on Comixology. I know that that's a thing that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so check it out. If you, I think if you like issue one, you're going to love the rest of it. It's a beautiful book. Um, like the art will floor you and then the story is actually very good as well um otherwise i also read a book that was sent to me um via email uh matt canning sent me an email he wanted me to check out his book honeymoon in the afterlife and it's a, it's a black and white story that has no dialogue and it's about ghosts in oh. an afterlife um the, it's so it's an interesting story it's 55 pages long there's no dialogue so you kind of have to take a lot of it's, it's it's heavily interpreted you know it's based on what you want uh it captured some really strong emotional moments um and in the world of this comic everyone's a ghost and the story seems to blend between multiple stories at once with very little transition um but they're all connected together through symbols and some carried over character quirks that you get like oh this person is moving from here to here but all the ghosts are drawn the same they look like your your standard cartoon ghost like a sheet over the head of a person <laughs> um just kind of floating but, you know, they, they interact with things. There are these symbols that get you into different places of the world. Um, some of it wasn't clear to me. I will say that, like I said, there was some ambiguity in the comic that it, at times that kind of left me a little confused and I had to maybe go back and reread a few pages. Um, so, not you know, because not having dialogue, is, it's hard to connect some things sometimes. Um, so I read this through about uh, twice just to make sure that I understood the whole thing. And uh, the one thing that I will say that really worked for this book is there were very clear... Um, feelings throughout this book you get these strangely strong emotions from these very simply drawn ghosts um, is happiness sadness feelings of loneliness bonding love but there's this sense of dread hanging over everything everyone is dead i think i, I mean and, and, and i and i and i say i think because there is there's the end of this book does something that changes the nature of the entire story um, from what you think you're reading to where the end goes. And I was really impressed with the way that, well, this black and white book ended up using color. And in my head as I was reading it, like this splash of color hits the page and it triggered this weird symphony of change and music in my mind. Like there was clearly something different happening because obviously color was introduced, but the way that it was used, I thought was just beautiful. 
Um, and then, so the story ends on a, on a very interesting beat. I don't want to spoil it. I think um, there's a huge question that kind of ends the book. And I think for a book like this that is super ambiguous to begin with, ending with an ambiguous question seems like a bad idea. But I actually really liked it. So for 55 pages, um, this is a really cool, interesting read. Um, I don't know if Matt's selling this book or anything out there, but his name is Matt Canning. The book is called Honeymoon in the Afterlife. So if you want to check it out, I would just say Google this guy. Um, well, I'll put the name of this book and stuff in the show notes. If I find a link, I'll put that in there as well. That sounds interesting. But, I will have to track that. Yeah, down. definitely. Yeah, it was. It was a. It's a really cool, cool little book. Um, but yeah, I guess let's let's move on. Let's let's talk about comic books that are coming out this upcoming week. Comics are dropping on February fifth, two thousand twenty. Twenty twenty. What are you guys excited for this week? Paul, let's start with you. Um, well, I, let me start with a confession. I am about six issues behind on Justice League. Um, but How I'm going dare to, you? I'm, I know I'm going to I'm going to pick Justice League number forty uh, with that big caveat because issue forty of Justice League introduces a new creative team. Um, and again, my my um, my backlog of unread issues has nothing to do with the quality of the Scott Snyder uh, current Justice League run. Just the fact that I haven't managed to miss an issue in there, so I have to go track it down and then get caught up. But gotcha, gotcha. Um, I really have liked Scott Snyder's Justice League. It's big, over the top. It's it's one of those books that's it. It's a great Justice League story. At the same time, it manages to kind of rewrite the entire history of the DC Comics universe. Um, <laughs> it's a big thing. So part of me wants maybe not not necessarily smaller scale, but uh, you know more traditional type of focused superhero heroics in my Justice League book. So the new creative team jumping out this issue forty is Robert Venditti uh, with Doug Monkey on pencils. I think that's a pretty solid creative team and looks like the first story arc they're doing is about a group of uh, genetically modified supermen being led by the Eradicator who attack Earth. That's my jam. I mean, that sounds like the kind of stuff I would read. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff yeah. that Justice League should be fighting. So um, Justice League is one of those books that I think should be DC's flagship team book. And for a long time, periods of time it kind of flounders and i think right now they got a little moment, momentum going and this new team has a lot to live up to and i think they can pull it off so i'm excited to see what they do yeah, yeah. that's a that robert venditti and doug monkey that's yeah that's like a valiant team right <laughs> Sounds nick like is is that a valiant uh, team venditti wrote exo man of war for a long time but i believe okay carrie nord was the artist not okay Mankey. Okay, never. I just knew Venditti's name. I knew he was heavily associated with uh, Valiant yeah, at one point. That's but correct. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Nick, what about you? What are you excited for this week? <clears throat> so for me, it's probably got to be Predator Hunters 3, number one. Mm-hmm. For those who need clarification, it is this is the third iteration of the Predator Hunters series and the first issue of that series. Uh, it's not exactly a... a a, a big brain book uh, i mean maybe i'll be shocked maybe this maybe this will be the book that thoroughly you know deconstructs the nine panel grid better than anything else <laughs> i'm probably gonna go out on a limb and say no uh yeah but uh y- you never know um basically the whole premise of this uh, franchise if you want to call it that is hey w- what if instead of getting murdered on a massive scale by predators, people banded together and went after predators uh, to catch a predator, if if you will? Um, <laughs> this sounds like it's going to work out well for them. Like, 
but like I'm not a huge Predator fan. I'll 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 just say that like Predator for me is like when you go to the store because you want goldfish, right? And they don't have goldfish, but they have like the store brand brand knockoff, which is like whales. And you're like, well, the whales don't come in multiple colors, and they're not flavor blasted. But I guess these will do. Uh, and I guess We're talking in, about snacks, snacks yeah, here. <laughs> I mean, I gotta stay. You 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 write what you know, right? Um, <laughs> And for me, that's junk food. Uh, so, in 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 that analogy, aliens are the real goldfish. I want, I want, I want goldfish. I want aliens. Predator is okay. Um, okay. And then the the goldfish that also have the pretzel goldfish. That's mm-hmm. AVP because it's like it's not everything <laughs> I want, but it's all right. Um, <laughs> look, uh, oh brother, people are like, what does this book have going for it? And that's fair. I get that. Uh, one, the number one issue has a variant cover which glows in the dark uh i'm all about that dumbness so all right that's good uh secondly on a slightly more serious note uh the art is being drawn by brian thies and i guess i should have i should have had credits there uh written by chris warner art by brian thies colors by west dezobia um thies drew all of the um, Aliens Life and Death series, all 17 issues of it um, from several years ago when uh, Dan mm-hmm. Abnett was writing that. So in that sense, that's that's something I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. Probably going to read it in trade. Uh, it looks like they're actually discontinuing the ongoing story and starting something fresh compared to the first two arcs, but we'll see. Uh, beyond that, I, I, I will say there are two other really strong contenders for Book of the Week uh, from Yen Press, which I came across while I was on Fresh Comics looking at... <laughs> Oh, no. this week's books so um one of them is titled um no joke quote uh i am behemoth of the s rank monster but i am mistaken as a cat and i live as I, i'm sorry let me make sure i get this right because it's yeah I'm, I'm adding words quote i am behemoth of the s rank monster but i am mistaken as a cat and i live a pet of elf girl uh volume one that's a book okay yep um there's another one with a slightly smaller title uh, called um, uh, After School Bitchcraft, Volume 1, which... Uh... <laughs> Listen, people read books, okay? They're all different types out there. Yeah. And, you know, we say this all the time. If you have an interest, there's a comic for you. And I think someone out there... These comics are for them. That's hey, all that it is. These these could be good. I I mean, honestly, that first one with a title like that, I I almost feel like they've actually described everything that's going to happen, but I, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> they might have left if, something out. If the book is that, if the book title is that descriptive, you know that the story has to be either massively complex or so simple, you know exactly what you're yeah. getting into, right? Yeah. Like this is this is. That's insane. I, I can't believe that's a thing. I'm, I'm, we're moving on, though, because I'm going to talk about what book that I'm excited for this week. And I'm going to check out this new book from John Lehman and Carl Molstert called The Man Who Effed Up Time. <laughs> this is, uh, I, I don't know what this is, really. It's a sci-fi action comedy from Lehman, and I'm okay with that. And this is a brand new artist just making his way in the scenes, so I'll give it a shot. I don't know what this could possibly be about, but uh, obviously there's going to be time travel and some goofiness, so I am on board at least to try number one. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> I, I I mean, I'm, I'm always willing to try a John Lehman book, um, despite some of the rumblings we've, we've talked about mm-hmm. elsewhere where, you know, with him, but um, I'm always willing to try. 
The other book that I was going to mention was I kind of want to pick up X-Men slash Fantastic Four number one. Um, Chip Zdarsky's writing this. And for some reason, I have constantly just been avoiding reading Chip Zdarsky's Marvel books. Not for any particular reason. I just... I just don't read them. I don't know what it is. For some reason, I expect it. I, I'm worried that it can't be as good as some of the other stuff that he's read. So I know that I'm, I'm just going to be disappointed. But right. I've only heard stupendous things about all the work that he's done at Marvel. But I, the one reason why I'm hesitant about this book in particular is because I never really understood why crossover titles between the X-Men and Fantastic Four ever happen. It's mm-hmm. like mixing oil and water to me. Like they just don't go together science and not science shouldn't be go hand in hand like this and not to even say that the fantastic four are even remotely scientific right because there's it's all science magic but it feels like they're two different types of stories that really don't clash well but i don't know someone someone out there proved me wrong i don't know wasn't there there there's that whole um scene in house of x where like the fantastic four show up when they're setting up krakoa i don't remember the details but They've been setting this up for a while, I think. So, I oh sure, yeah. I mean, not to say that it doesn't make sense in continuity. Okay. I just yeah. feel like the types of stories that they tell in those books right. don't cla- like don't mix well. Mm-hmm. And you just hate Franklin. You hate Franklin. I Reed. just hate Franklin Richards. <laughs> and I think by saying that, um, he's going to come kill me <laughs> in the grand multiverse of all things, right? Because um, right? he's like uber super overpowerful. I know that he's a mutant, right? Like that's that's the whole big thing is that he's a super mutant, and like so the X Men were like, whenever you want, kid, just come over and you can live at our house. And he's like, but I want to <laughs> live with my real mom and dad. We have HBO. And, yeah. yeah, Professor X is like, yeah, we have we have HBO, and like. <laughs> You're 13 now. We'll we'll turn a blind eye if you want to turn on Cinemax after 11. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's what the book's going to be about. Chip Zdarsky's writing it, right? He only writes comedy books, right, guys? Right. right. Um, I know that he doesn't because I read the first issue of Spider-Man: The Life and Times, and it was very good. Um, and I picked up the rest. I just have yet to read them. But anyways, we're gonna take a quick break. <laughs> when we come back, we're gonna be talking about director's cut comics and annotated comics and what the hell does that even mean why do these books even exist a question we're constantly asking here on i read comic books so we'll be back in a second Before we start our show this week, I want to remind people, I should say inform people maybe, for those of you that don't know, we started a new series on Patreon called The Saga of Saga, and it is a massive endeavor that myself, Brian, Kate, and Kara are digging into. We are going through every single issue of the series Saga by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, and we're talking about every single issue issue by issue in in little small bursts of eight to ten minutes so if you are a patreon supporter or five dollar tier and above you'll get into this you're getting two episodes a week it is the most fun we've had recording a show we're going to go through every single episode we're going to issue we're going to talk about every arc of the story how it all plays out together so if you haven't read saga and you want to now's the time listen to that after you've read the series it's it's going to be a great great thing you could read along and read it we don't spoil too many things outside of the issue that we're talking about it's it's going to be a lot of fun so make sure you head over to patreon.com slash ircb podcast and check that out we've got a whole bunch of stuff coming out on patreon this year guys it's going to be insane but i i had to plug it i i'm so excited for this it started last week friday and it's going to be going until this we're done with the series so get ready for a ton of ton of awesome content on our patreon but anyways we're here to talk about this week 
annotations in comics, annotations for comics, and director's cut comics. What does that mean? Why do we read them? Do we even do we even like this stuff? <laughs> what are what's comics? What's the point of it? What are, what's the point of it? No, I, I'm genuinely curious because I think that every once in a while we'll see like a digital version or even a physical edition of like a director's cut comic comic, or we'll hear about something like the annotated watchman. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? And is that something that you're interested in as someone who's maybe read comic, these comic books before these reissues of comics that have already come out, but with more information to some capacity. So I'm going to, you know, toss it over to you, Paul and, and Nick. What do you guys think about this stuff? You know, th- this topic came to mind when I saw that they had re-released uh, immortal Hulk number one, as a director's cut. And my initial reaction was like, yeah, I, I love that book unconditionally, but there's no way I'm going to rebuy it, no matter how much they repackage it, you know, in that right, format. Right. And which is kind of a shame because I, I really like Al Ewing's writing and it'd be interesting to get some process notes and some insight from him. But the idea of going back and rebuying something just to get that felt unnecessary in a day and age when a lot of that stuff gets thrown in the back of trade collections. You know what I mean? So the idea of the director's cut of a comic coming out is not appealing. On the other hand, when that stuff is collected in a trade paperback, when you see the, you know, character design sketches or maybe some uh, pages of a script, I love that process stuff. So Mm -hmm. on one hand, I like that stuff, but it's a hard sell to rebuy a single issue just to get it. Right. What's interesting is that I noticed that with like, house of x i think it was like the first issue if you bought it digitally like i did um you automatically got the director's cut but it was seven dollars or six (laughs) dollars or something and then like two weeks later they released the regular number one for four bucks and i was like you sons of bitches (laughs) you got me you got me and like i I remember reading through that and i was just like holy shit this is 140 pages long and i know they've done that with a couple different x books Mm -hmm. and it was just it's so long and there's so much content and I think that stuff is really cool. It's just sometimes it's a little unnecessary, especially to get thwarted as the number one digitally. Like, what a, what a bunch of garbage. Yeah. But um, I don't know. What do you guys take away from those kinds of books? I mean, Nick, I'll, maybe I'll let you jump in here. Yeah, I mean, director's cut issues are a little weird. Uh, and I sort of diagrammed for myself kind of... They, they seem to largely populate two different categories, I guess I would say. And mm-hmm. and the first would be um, usually when a, when a flagship book launches a number one or a big event rolls around the corner, usually for DC or Marvel, um, they'll launch a, a director's cut, usually directly at the exact same time that the first issue launches. Or in, in the case you described, if they're being real shady, they'll actually launch it ahead of the much more affordable <laughs> um, normal yeah. version of the issue. Um and yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see a lot of mileage for those. I guess if you're a big fan, go ahead and get it. Um, I, I, I guess maybe in their line of thought, it's the idea that we better at least launch it now because at least people will um, buy the six dollar issue first and be happy, as opposed to, you know, as Paul was describing, you know, you already got four dollars from me, you're not going to get another six, right? right. So, right. Um, and and I don't know. It, it it's just. I mean, it's definitely a collector's thing, right? Because why would you be like, oh, you know, I love this book so much, and I haven't even read it that I want to own the script or I want to own the, you know, the the raw pencils. Like you haven't even read the original book yet, <laughs> right? So um, yeah. Although I guess I should I mean, say sometimes a director's cut um, just gives you um, like the black and white pencils, and of course other times you get 
some pages of black and white pencils along with the original colored artwork or whatever. So, um, you know, that can happen in different ways. Uh, so that's like sort of category one of director's cut for me. And then the second one is whoops, a book that we didn't think was going to be this big of a deal turned out to be a real big deal. Um, we want to try to make money off of this and you know, that could be either, um, as Paul said earlier, um, the Hulk book, mm-hmm. whichever one, that Immortal Hulk, or uh, Tom King's Vision, where mm-hmm. they, you know, went back a year later and said, we're going to take each, like, we're going to release, so Tom King's run was 12 issues, we're going to re- release a six-issue run, each of which is going to contain two issues of Tom King's original run with extra content, and that is exactly the sort of reason why I think, like, centuries from now, when people are trying to, like, understand, like, our art and our culture and everything, and they're trying to parse together how in the world comic books work, they're not going to bother figuring it out completely. They're just going to be like, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> fuck it. So this well, book it- is labeled number one, but it's actually number one and number two of a book that came out last year, and now it's being re-released. Yep, that's right. Uh, well, I mean, Nick, we're already having, we already have that problem if you look back 15 years, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, someone who wasn't reading, for instance, someone who wasn't reading, you know, Marvel at the time, trying to look back and say, okay, which order of, of Avengers do I read? Because there's seven volume ones in 10 years. Um, wh- where do I start, you know? And, and it's it's interesting, because I, I think... A lot of times Marvel tries to do that and DC tries to do that to just kind of contain runs and stuff like that. But it does get ultimately very confusing. I mean, these these package things, I think there's a lot more details in them now than there were maybe 15 years ago, where it's very clear on the front of Vision, this Vision um, director's cut, that it contains two issues and a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's basically just a reissue with more information, which is... Which is funny because they actually did print editions of these, but I think a lot of these digital, or excuse me, the uh, director's cuts that we see now from like Marvel, they only come out as digital mm-hmm. because like who wants to buy a hundred and forty page number one that's got yeah. a bunch of script in the back, you know? Yeah. Well, um, it's so goofy to me because like when I'm and I'm talking about like re-releases of singles, like the Vision thing, for example. Um, I don't know who's really going to buy that because it's not a collector's item, right? Like, the the collector's item would be having the vision number one from the original run, not this Mm -hmm. director's cut one. I I think the people that are buying it are probably people that didn't buy the number one, like, buy the single issues when it came out in the first place, and they prefer to have those single issues. That's that's my guess. Why aren't you buying the collector's edition trade, then? (laughs) I don't know. Because the collector's edition trade is, like, $75. Oh, right. Now we're... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're now talking about the category called Marvel Trades. I totally forgot that that's a totally bad, bad place. Never mind. (laughs) Marvel thinks that if they add six pages of extra content, they can charge you somehow an extra $20 on top of the single issues added together. Uh, And I say that as someone who has two of those hardcovers sitting on his shelf right now, because I didn't buy the Vision in single issues when it came out. I bought the hardcover, and I'm pretty sure it was like 70 bucks. (laughs) I did that with X-Men... X-Men Legacy with uh, that's all about Legion and I'm pretty sure that was like a hundred dollar trade and it's like maybe not even 400 pages it's crazy right yeah it's crazy guys hardcovers are insane (laughs) um that's interesting because I as as my spreadsheet has borne out that I've been keeping track of it um I read uh singles exclusively in physical edition and I read trades almost exclusively digitally right so the idea of rebuying a single issue doesn't make any sense, but if I could get that content digitally in the trade, that's more appealing, right? 
Right. Um, I mean, but does that always, is that always the case though? Because I think some of the times, and maybe this is like the marketing side of things to say, we want people to buy more copies of this stuff. Right. Maybe they don't throw all that extra content in the trade. And I know we've talked about this hundreds of times on the show Mm. to say, wait for the trade with the extra content. Yeah. I think in some of these cases, like, Unless they're going to do like a director's cut collected edition, you might not get that in the collection. There's a difference between that that stuff. The reason I like getting criminal and physical issues, single issues, is because I know I'm going to get that stuff. The back backup essays and material stuff I really like. That's mm-hmm, not going to mm-hmm. be in the collection. That yeah, exactly. There are, there are yeah. certain writers that say like you're not going to get this stuff in the trade. Yeah, full stop. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what we're talking about with uh, the director's cut, with that type of bonus material, that's very rarely a selling point for me. When it shows up in the back of the collection, it's a nice treat, but I'm not going out of my way to buy something just because it has a few pages of script notes of the script right. at the end. That makes sense. Right. Even though I'm someone who really likes to see that process, that's rarely uh, the reason I would buy a book just to see it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nick, you you've got some some notes in here um, in our doc that basically you know you go over some books that I didn't even know had director's cuts, like Gideon Falls number one, Black Hammer. Um, I realize these the ones that you've listed are all Jeff Lemire books, as you say, <laughs> but um, it's interesting to know that Image and Dark Horse and stuff were putting that out. I mean, do you think that's a push from Jeff Lemire, or is it something to just kind of like bolster the sales of these books? Um, that's that's a great question. Um. I think part of the argument or or discussion would have to revolve around um, were those director's cuts launched at the same time as the original number ones or down the line? I think in terms of Black Hammer, and I'm almost 100% certain in terms of Gideon Falls, that both of them were released after the fact. Oh yeah, much, um, much later in the case of Gideon Falls. Which for me is slightly more respectable um because you're not cashing in on sort of a feel of missing out you know a feeling of missing out like people do when you launch it at the same time as the um the normal version of the book and people go oh is this going to be more of a collector's item oh you know what am i what am i missing in here right um Mm -hmm. so this idea of just putting it out a year later and saying look but by now you've you've probably already read the normal book you know exactly what you're getting into. Um, this is this is this is for a very small crowd, but understandably, probably one that actually you know is a is an audience that's very much engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'm I'm more on board with that. Uh, I don't think it's as shady of a you know business offering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the Gideon Falls director's cut, for instance. Like that came out after issue six dropped of Gideon Falls, and yeah. the the description is it says after selling out multiple print runs, Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino's smash hit thriller Gideon Falls gets a special edition of its explosive first issue in glorious black and white. Also collecting the first issue script, this quote director's cut is a must have for fans of one of 2018's hottest new series. So I think that they're trying to sell it as a collector's item because and if you look at the preview pages like on comiXology it's in black and white with the exception of the letters which are in like a a color which i think is really cool 
but this is essentially just a black and white edition of the book yeah um, with right. no colors which i think is interesting yeah. well for um, me it definitely had interest because andrea sorrentino's pencils in this book are for me a pretty interesting departure from stuff that i'd seen with green arrow or what little i'd seen of old man logan because it's mm-hmm. a lot sketchier like there's like the the shading seems different than in the past yeah, and so right. for me to actually have the color work stripped away and be able to see exactly what was going on um yeah for me there was value in that uh gotcha so yeah i i do own that Um, (laughs) (laughs) it will accrue value it must um (laughs) it it strikes me that as we're doing this conversation i realize that the term director's cut is very different in this context than we use when we talk about movies because the idea of a, a film the director's cut is including the scenes that the director was forced to cut or there were changes, things that they didn't include that, you know, would substantially change the experience of watching the movie. Mm-hmm. If you're just reading a comic and all of a sudden, like, after it's done, there's just the script pages without the art, that's not the same thing, right? Yeah, it's more like you've entered into the special features section of a DVD. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. And there's certain... All I'm saying... Is release the JJ cut? Okay. Oh no! No! no. Oh, I'm just no. kidding. I'm just kidding. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I was going to say, just you know, making friends everywhere. <laughs> there are certain examples of that stuff where I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, my collected edition of Arkham Asylum has um, Grant Morrison's original script at the back, which is mm-hmm. that book. I think it's really interesting because the art is so expressive and uh, open to interpretation, and the story is. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's esoteric uh, mm-hmm. in a way that is open to a lot of individual interpretation. So to have Morrison's actual, like, here's what I wrote and this is the end result, to compare the two is really interesting. But uh, on the flip side, when I read Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, this collection that I mentioned earlier, the back of the digital collection I had had um, Gillen's like, original like uh, uh, proposal issue by mm-hmm. issue breakdown. Here's what the issue is going to cover. Blah, blah, blah. And I got bored to tears reading that. Cause I'm like, well, I literally just <laughs> read that in the comic book yeah. version, which is more exciting. So, yeah. you know, it's, it depends on the creator and it depends on your engagement with the, the original work, how much of that process you want to see, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. Director's cut that that was like a point that I wanted to make as well. It's, these are not director's cuts, right? God, I w- I would love <laughs> love to see the idea of a comic that was cut down and then drawn, and then somebody said somebody higher up in you know Warner Brothers, you know whatever is just like you know cut those pages out, like, mm. and mm-hmm. then we got to see those pages. That would be fucking insane. Like, there's truly a director's cut of Batman the Damn Number One that has the dick <laughs> in it. That's the only edition of a director's cut that truly exists out there, as far as I'm concerned yeah. um i mean and i'd love to know if there are more out there like we're covering a very small number of books here and yeah. i think mostly to talk about the higher level idea of do we like these do we think that there's value in them and it, it sounds to me like we're there's kind of a consensus of maybe not like this isn't a huge thing that we're going out of our way to look for right um but i i, I do think that there is there's merit in some of it sometimes to see like pencils without colors or to see, you know, how a script compares directly to a book. And you do get that sometimes in the back of regular issues, but to have a whole like maybe back and forth of an extra 80 pages of, of a single issue comic where you get to see panel or you get to see 
see the script right next to the panels that were laid out. That's that's pretty cool stuff. But yeah. are you going to spend extra money on that? Probably not. Are you going to buy a second copy of a single issue comic just for yeah. that? Maybe not. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I did want to talk about in this episode was annotated comics. Um, if only because I didn't really think that this was something that existed. And it turns out there's a handful of these out there. Um, specifically, the ones that I was able to find was annotated Watchmen and annotated Marvels. <laughs> and... I don't want to say that Marvel's <laughs> is like DC's Watchmen, but like it kind of is sometimes yeah. in terms of like everyone points back to Marvel's to say, if you want to understand the history of Marvel, you should read this. Sure, sure. And um, if, and if you were dumb enough to stick around after the guy said, if you want to understand the history of Marvel, like you deserve whatever <laughs> yeah. comes your way at that point. Right. Like you should have left the room. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's interesting. Like the annotated Marvels came out last year. Um, I, and I don't think this was Marvel trying to react to DC by any means. I'm making that comparison just, just because it kind of clicks in my head weirdly. But um, like annotated Watchmen would be something if only because that book has and it continues to be a book that we have to unpack forever and ever and will never stop it's just <laughs> what we were talking about in the first half of the show for some reason we always bring everything back to Watchmen because it was a pivotal thing that happened in comics yada 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 we don't have to go into that now rip um, it off the pedestal Mike do it do it no 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 and I'm not here to make that commentary but what I think is interesting is that an annotated version of this book exists and I think that buying that would almost be worth it to a certain extent to just get all of the shit that people have unpacked over the years kind of collected together and signed off by dc um to say this is what this book was about and i mean we all know that the the maybe the relationship between alan moore and dave gibbons and dc isn't great um but that being said like to get an annotated version of this book would be interesting just to to see all of the stuff that could be unpacked from this based off of the script and based off of stuff that maybe Alan Moore said in the past or Dave Gibbons said in the past. Um, because there are other versions of this book, like Watchmen Noir that exists where it's all black and white yeah. or Watchmen Companion, which I think is a book that goes alongside the the comic and maybe you mm-hmm. read it page to page or something. I don't know. Uh, it came out in 1990, which I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing until just now. But even still, like, going through the annotated version of this, I'm sure would be an even longer sitting than just reading fucking Watchmen itself. Um, <laughs> well, I think... Uh, but yeah, yeah, are you guys interested in something like that? Would, are annotation books like this interesting to you? What's, what's interesting is that the... I love reading fan annotations that people do for issues, but the idea of buying another volume of a book I already have to get the quote-unquote official annotations doesn't seem as appealing to me. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Watchmen is a book that there's a lot of literary illusions that if you aren't aware of them, they might go over your head or, you know, you might miss. So having those annotations might help in that regard. You can see like, oh, this is why this, this is a reference to X. This is, you know, why Alan Moore put this in here. Like that's, that's all interesting. If you didn't know the, the connection between the Watchmen characters and the Charlton comics characters, there's a reason to to know that to affect the story, but Mm -hmm. that would be an interesting annotation. But I think that's all stuff you can glean from essays and fan written annotations that are probably more insightful than in, you know, whatever DC put out as a money grab. So, I mean, I'm looking through the preview of this annotated Watchmen and it is something like it is like eight point font next to every single thing breaking down stuff panel by panel with references to stuff like Blue Beetle and and all the various things. It is a lot. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, well, let's make reading comics feel like a chore or feel like doing yeah, homework. Uh, you know? One thing I do want to point out is like page, what is it? They're on page 10 right now, panel four. Dan observes that the door lock is broken. Like that's one of the annotations. Like, <laughs> what? I didn't get that. I didn't get that from is the Is this comic. like when the idiot goes on to genius, you know, to talk about the lyrics of a song and yeah. just like basically yes. repeats exactly what the song does and it's like this is not analysis. <laughs> When Drake says, I was running in the streets, what yeah. he meant was that he was putting his feet to pavement and moving forward using <laughs> momentum. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. Um, but yeah, no, Paul, I think your idea of fan annotations is something that's interesting because as I was kind of doing some you know, brief research for the show, I try to do research for the show sometimes, sometimes. guys, I promise. Um, I did... It did I did come across a couple different sites like uh, Comics Alliance. They used to do this like four or five years ago, and, uh, yeah. like regular regular posts about annotations of various comics, which I think is really interesting. And let me tell you, um, let me tell you, as someone who was reading Grant Morrison's Batman and Multiversity at the time, that was part of my experience. I would read the issue, and then I would go to Comics Alliance to read David Uzmary's annotations <laughs> of that issue with the book in front of me. Like that was part of the experience. Just like not that those books were too complex to understand, it's, but again, it's that, that sense of it's almost like you're getting someone else's viewpoint of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, David Uzmary, who's writing those annotations, he would notice stuff that I would miss, or he'd have a reference to a DC universe history that I didn't know that well. So it, was, it wasn't it was essential to me understanding the comic, but it was expanded my understanding of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it, it was, totally. That was definitely a part of my enjoyment of Grant Morrison's multiversity was reading annotations along with it. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I've been looking at uh, another site that's apparently still doing these things is uh, Multiversity Comics and going through some of their history of the the, the breakdowns that they've done, like Wicked and Divine is a big one. Um, Doomsday Clock is a big one. Uh, and those are books that I think both deserve annotations because there's so much to unpack with those books. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, there's, a, there's a couple of other stuff, you know, the Fantastic Four, Harrow County, um, I, there was another Hellboy that I saw and um, Doctor Doom. I, I think it's really interesting that people are going out of their way to write these long articles to kind of break down a, a book. And it's not going to be page by page, panel by panel, because they can't print that stuff. But it is it is curious to see that folks are still publishing that stuff. And I think that there's probably a fan base out there for them to, to say like exactly what Paul was saying. You know, you finish an issue and then you go to this site to see what their breakdown was in case you missed something. Um <laughs> And I think if you're dedicated to a book, that's great. I um I heavily heavily relied on the House to Astonish podcast. They have a blog where um where they were just breaking down all of the House of X powers of ten issues. And again, it was like page by page. And as someone oh, that wow. had never read a lot of X Men, that helped me understand those books a lot. And again, I enjoyed the books on their own. It wasn't that it was too complex for me to understand, but that added a level of my enjoyment to it, being able to say, like, oh, that's who that character is, and that's you know, that's their relationship, which I didn't know before. That's why mm-hmm. it's strained. So that stuff is very helpful. And that, like you said, there's a lot more out there than maybe I we even realize of people doing that. Yeah, I, I found some some random fan site. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It, I, when I searched for comic book annotations, it was like one of the first sites that came up. Um, and it's like they they go. It's called in. In Jorla's world, mm-hmm. I, okay. I I don't know anything about this, and it looks like they just go through DC and Alan Moore's books and just break everything down. Um, as I'm clicking through, like there's just it's weird alternate universe timeline breaks down, breakdowns on 
oh, issue by issue, page by page breakdowns, just as straight text files. <laughs> like it's <laughs> okay. It's such a it's such a weird site. I mean, but it's it's, it's like a GeoCities page. Yeah, it kind of looks like it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I couldn't really find any any other um, examples of this other than the Marvels and the Watchmen one because I mm-hmm. don't think that there's actually like a huge need for it exactly right because yeah. a lot of the times comic books are pretty pretty straightforward and a lot of the times i think authors when they write complex books actually release their own version of annotations mm-hmm. and, I, and i say this from you know experience with reading like warren ellis's newsletter or kieran gillen's blog or his newsletter like i know for the longest time kieran gillen was writing down like 5,000 to 10,000 word breakdowns of yeah. each individual issue of Wicked and Divine. And that is insane, but like no need for anybody else to do that. Kieran's <laughs> got it covered. Right. Um, so if you needed to have a deep breakdown, I mean, those those blog posts still exist out there. I know, I think Matt Fraction did that for a while and yeah. a couple of other writers have done that over the years, um, which is cool. I mean, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you know, find a, a creator's newsletter. Chances are they have one. Every big creator out there has got one these days, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's it's... Interesting. I don't know. There, there's not a lot of annotations out there, so I, I realize that's kind of the weaker side of this discussion, but um, it's something that I think we've talked about many times on the show before, that a lot of comics are really straightforward about how they're explaining things to you. Um, and even when you need to look for deeper meanings and themes, like we've talked about in another episode, um, a lot of those times it's just you kind of take a step back and just reevaluate your your comics. Like, apparently I read Peter Cannon the wrong way, and so I need to go back and read it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I totally get it, but it is just a matter of maybe taking a step back from your book and not just reading them for the face value content and instead saying, like, is there actually a bigger thing going on here? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned, there there are certain uh, creators and certain books that um, I enjoy reading the annotations or finding fan annotations because I think it is a thing where that shared experience of, you know, if I don't have someone to talk about the book with, this is a good way to do it. I can get another view of the book and some deeper insight. And if nothing else, it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, point to the book being too complex or me not understanding it. It actually deepens my understanding, right? So yeah. I think yeah. definitely I'd be curious to see, you know, someone that does have a big X-Men background to go read those annotations about Hoxbox. Maybe there's something in there that you missed, you know, even though you've read everything, having another viewpoint might a- a- expand your understanding and enjoyment of that book. Oh, yeah. I my brain only has so much capacity, and so <laughs> I mean, like a lot of the times yeah. I remember X Men stuff, and then I remember it wrong, or someone goes, <laughs> "Mike, actually, no." And on page forty three of volume two of Grant Morrison's X Men run, you actually yeah. see that Kid Omega punches Beak in the face, and that's why they don't like each other. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> and also, no one's actually done that <laughs> to me. <Yeah>. I just <laughs> it, it, it's also nice too because I think uh, it's there's a weird sort of um, overwhelming sense. If you're trying to read X-Men and you've never read it before, it's pretty daunting, you know? So instead of going to Wikipedia and reading a summary to get annotations uh, to the book you're reading or trying to get through, is a much easier and more enjoyable way to do that than trying to absorb, you know, 30 years worth of history from a, a, a summary, you know? Yeah. So, this is how I feel about Justice League. I think oh. every time I read Justice League, I feel overwhelmed mm-hmm. in that I don't know who this character is or why they're talking or <laughs> like, uh, like I read J- uh, Jeff John's JSA and kind of okay. just rolled with 95% of the punches Yeah, because I was just like, who the fuck are these? There's Blue 90 Superman. characters in this book. Who? Wait, that's, that's Superman, that's but it's not Superman. Right. Why is that girl called Star Girl, but she looks like she's a Supergirl? Like, I mean, I mean, it was an interesting book, I, I but you got to just roll with the punches as we always say with when it comes to big two books but yeah um 
I mean, I would, I would love like annotated breakdowns of some stuff, especially if you're like, okay, here's like a wiki, a quick Wikipedia breakdown that you need to get into this book. Yeah. Um, that would be really cool to see if some site out there has done that. Say, okay, so you want to read X, and then they give you, a, <laughs> you know, everything to get you up to speed on that thing. Yeah. Um, I think that would be really cool. Maybe that's something we should do. No, that's too much. That's too much <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you guys have any final thoughts on this, Nick? I realize we've just kind of been barreling over you for, for a little bit. Oh, no, um, that's fine. Uh, I mean, one thing I would say is that I, I think there are some other books with annotations, annotations that I do enjoy. But I think with some of those, it's just more a pure necessity that they exist. And I'm just happy that they're there. I mean, one good example would be um, Alan Moore's From Hell with uh, art by Eddie Campbell, oh, yeah. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I mean, the amount of annotations is insane. And it makes sense because when you realize the sheer amount of work that went into that book, it's just blinding. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the best way of doing annotations is. Uh, honestly, the whole side-by-side uh, with an eight-point font, like it's like a like editor's markup, basically. Um, like, I don't dig that. Uh, I think you should leave the original work uncluttered, um, which is what happens with the annotations in From Hell. But that does mean that you're constantly like, I have, I have, I have two bookmarks in From Hell right now. Okay, right. <laughs> I have one where I am in the book, and I have one in the annotation section in the back of the book, so I can keep flipping back and forth whenever I need to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's enriching stuff. It's, I mean, it's it's thoroughly interesting because, especially with something like From Hell, you've got a book which is a weaving together right of um, historical fact with with fiction, and so with something like that, it's you. I mean, at least for me, it's fascinating to know um, where Moore is completely making things up or completely inventing characters. Uh, and, and where he's actually pulling from some book on Jack the Ripper or another book on Jack the Ripper and sort of yeah. where his, like, where the connective tissues exist between his imagination and 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 the things he's reading. So, um, yeah, I, I think when it comes to books that are based on quote-unquote reality, right? Like, yeah. Jack the Ripper at this point is high fantasy, but... Um, <laughs> It's still like when you look at stuff like, especially, you know, around like serial killers and stuff like that, yeah. when there are comics about that, seeing the sources in the back or like Durf Backdurf's, you know, my friend yeah, Dahmer, like the right. back of that book is just full of breakdowns. And I found that mesmerizing the second time we read through it. I was like, you know, I'm going to read through this whole thing. And next thing I knew it was three in the morning and as I'm going through these, you know, eight point font breakdowns as he goes page by page explaining where he pulled different things that he put into the book yeah. is mesmerizing. But I think that works better for like i said books that are based on you know real life um versus maybe fiction where there's maybe not as much ambiguity because it's it's fiction you know right i mean uh, it it seems like this stuff really exists in in two camps one of which is books that veer into non-fiction subjects where you need um in as much as you 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 want insight you also want uh author accountability right in terms of in terms of how they're operating uh, and then the other camp is just books that have some insane amount of clout, or as Paul was getting at, obviously, you know, books with a large amount of depth or, or mm-hmm. things that you can get into. So um, that's why, uh, you know, that I don't know if you guys have seen that insane version of Sandman, but it's just, uh, <laughs> I mean, good God. Uh, Leatherbound editions or what? Uh, I mean, aren't the... Um, 
uh, isn't there, maybe I'm, maybe I'm confusing the fact that there's an annotated Sandman with just ultimate Sandman. And that's oh, just, don't. um, you've seen those, I mean, they're like hundred dollars. They're, they're, they're there's absolute? so many versions of Sandman. It makes me sick to yeah. my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> guys, let's talk about how Sandman's overrated. We're, you know, oh, we have Lord. a few minutes here at the end of the, I'm just Well, kidding. guys, I'm we've just... got to wrap up the show right now. <laughs> but really, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, we've said a lot about this. I'd be curious to hear other people's thoughts on if they read annotated versions of books or if they know of any other examples that really worked for them, um, especially when it comes to fiction books versus nonfiction. Because I think, Nick, you made a great point, like nonfiction books, that's maybe a whole different category that we didn't even get into today. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there's more to be said about that, like, just about nonfiction books in general but um yeah i think you know it'd be great to hear if folks have other examples out there so make sure to you know email us or tweet at us and stuff and so here's where i'm going to wrap up the show because i'm not getting into how sandman's overrated right now um (laughs) so you can you can follow us all on twitter you can follow nick at death star plans you can follow paul at oh hi Pauly. You can follow me at Mike Rappin, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I promise I try to post things when I can. Much like Superman is powered by our yellow sun, we are powered by fans like you on Patreon. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash IRCB Podcast. You can join and sign up for access to exclusive audio, articles, IRCB schedule updates, and top of my pile posts, and much, much more. Our Goodreads group is a lovely community of comic friends. You can join our yearly reading challenge, which uh, just recently started on February 1st. And you're welcome to comment on our weekly threads. This week's thread was our Book of the Month discussion about Saga Volume 1. You can check all of this out over at ircbpodcast.com forward slash Goodreads. Be sure to check out ircbpodcast.com for our comic book creator pronunciation guide, which we'll need to update soon. Uh, Our Discord server zines our merchandise and much much more everything good possibly want related to i read comic books and if you haven't already please rate the show five stars and give us a written review on itunes or stitcher or wherever a uh, simple rating seriously helps us and helps bring new listeners uh to the show you can email us with anything uh, you have to give us with what you've been reading recipes corrections questions anything else send those to ircbpodcast at gmail.com Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music for our show, and they also do the music for our Saga of Saga series. Make sure you check that out on Patreon. Xander is a high wizard of the grandest kind, great high-fiver, and honestly, if he knows you well enough, he'll give you a real nice hug. Uh, I want to say thank you to him for editing the show. Thank you to Paul and Nick for being on this episode, and thank you to the listeners out there and all the folks over on our Discord. I love hanging out and chatting with you guys. I can't wait for our next hangout on February 21st. Make sure you're on the Discord. It's happening. And until next time... Comics are good, and so are you. And that is the show. Boom. Yeah, it just rolls into the Sandman being overrated. That would be great. <laughs> good God. I mean, that's Paul. A, that's how much whole... of that have you read? Zero. Out of sheer curiosity. None. Zero. Yeah, interesting. The biggest okay. gaping yeah. hole in my. Uh, but it's all in Hoopla, so one of these days I'm gonna maybe this summer. I that know. Be my project. So. That's the thing. I've I've read Volume One probably four times. Yeah. And every time I finish Volume One, I go, "Why would I ever keep going?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean. 
And I know like there are so many people who love that book and they all tell me, Mike, if you just get past volume one, if you just do what everybody else says about... If you just watch seasons one and two and three, you'll find out in season four. It's actually a really good show. By the time you get season four of Supernatural, it all just starts coming together. Yeah, no, and I, I get it. And I really should, like, at some point sit down and read it. It's one of those books that's just, uh, it's I mean, monumental, and the hype is so big, it's going to let me down regardless, so I might as well get it over with. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't know, it's... Maybe I'll finally understand why people like Neil Gaiman. <laughs> I, I, I definitely understand people who go, like, I can't... I can't look at art from that time, right? And I mean, I hate to say it, but Sandman is not the best looking book ever. Sure, sure. Um, obviously, that's why it got recolored completely. Um, uh, and then, as we've talked about before, it's just a it's just a weird book because, like, if if you think it's like Morpheus centric, like after volume three, it like stops being Morpheus centric until like volume like eight again. Right, I mean, there's he's got a whole family of people, right? He's oh, the Sandman oh, and his sister's cool. death. What are they called? There's a name for all of brothers them. Brothers, a living house or something, and somebody lives in the moon. There's a cow jumps over a spoon or something, right? <laughs> the dreaming. Yeah. That's it, right? The Isn't dreaming. The, I don't know. I don't know. 